Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome to Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. Great to be with you here again. And my conversation partner for this week's episode of Two Ways News is not Philip Jensen, but someone who's actually done some work with Philip over the years. I think, haven't you, Ken? It's Ken Noakes. When were Absolutely. you working? When did you work with Philip? Were you at the cathedral with him at something? At the cathedral at MTND. What a privilege to work alongside him and to learn from him. Indeed. Tell us about. We're going to talk about your book. That's the main topic of our conversation today, or rather the subject of your book, which is really what is essential about Christian discipleship and maturity. But tell us, first of all, where are you these days? What's your ministry look like? Tell us a little bit about Ken Noakes. Sure. I'm a pastor uh, and I serve at Lower Mountains Anglican Church, which is at the base of the Blue Mountains just outside of Sydney. How long have you been there at Lower Blue Mountains? Yeah, we've been there for about four and a half years, arrived uh, just in time to get to know people before COVID decided to hit us. Uh, And since then, we've had bushfires, COVID, floods, COVID, and floods again. Welcome to the parish of the natural disaster. (laughs) So, Ken, I want to talk to you about your book, Christian Essentials. It's a unique and really helpful book, and it's about the nine key characteristics of every follower of Jesus. That's the subtitle on the cover. And I want to ask you the question that I always like to be asked when I'm interviewed about something I've written, and that Mm -hmm. is, why did you write this book? (laughs) Uh, thanks, you're very kind. Uh, it was a pleasure to be able to work through this one. I'm not sure I sat down to write a book. This is really written as a working discipleship manual, uh, and it was written over a, a fairly long period of time, over about a three-year period, and it came out of something I love doing as a pastor, and that is reading the Bible with people, um, often one-to-one. Uh, I'll go off, sit in a cafe with them, um, we'll open some passage, we'll talk through it, um, and see how it might apply into our lives as we listen to what God has to say. And what I found was as I was meeting with people over the years, I often found like I had four different types of conversation or at least different four different genesis of conversation really. Um, and that was really depending on where the person was spiritually. So you'd have the person who was checking out Jesus. And so they'd be asking all sorts of questions about Jesus. Uh, and my answers are what we're looking at in the Bible, trying to address whatever those particular concerns might be. And so what's written into this book is really elements that help you understand who Jesus is and what that might mean for you if you were to become a disciple. Another group of person that I might be reading the Bible with was someone who was a new believer. So they committed their life to Christ, who now put them in a Bible study studying Leviticus. Uh, so what was the step next? And so really, I'm trying to think through that. What was the new believer needing to understand from the Bible so they might walk with him? And, and in that sense, learning the essentials. The third group of person was the mature believer. And as a pastor, that's such a joy when you get to meet with people who have walked in faith for long periods of time. But often when you walked in faith for a long period of time, you now know so much of the Christian life that sometimes we get distracted by all of the things that we can be doing as a Christian. Um, And, you know, we operate in Sydney, and so you could probably go to a conference to do with something in the Christian life every week of the year if you wanted to. And so uh, I thought it'd be helpful to do some type of stock take of going, let's get back to the essentials. Think what must we make sure that we are thinking clearly about and that we have applied into our Christian lives. And so to help the mature believer remember and appreciate what that might look like so that when they are distracted, they know this is a must as opposed to this should or this could. And then the fourth group was the the person who was doubting their faith. 
um, and was living that faith out with all sorts of conflictions that they were trying to work through. Um, and they were looking for assurance of some uh, type. And so, again, what this book is trying to do is address some of those uh, those doubts. And often those doubts are driven because they are living in a world that is dark or living in a world that has got strong opinions that are often different to what the Bible calls us as a Christian to live like. And so there is a contrast there between what the world is saying and what God is saying. And those doubts are often driven by that contrast. And so what I'm trying to do is address that a little bit. That's a long answer, but that's sort of why I wrote the book. I want people to be able to enjoy being a disciple of Jesus, and I hope this will help. So you didn't sit down in your study and say, oh, I want to write a book about the basic essentials of following Jesus and what would be the topics I should cover. It came out of your conversations around the Bible with people, but I guess out of a theological or biblical reflection on on those conversations and what they meant and what they really were driving at. Yeah, that's right. There are people that are far wiser than me to sit in their studies that can actually write much better than I can. So this really that's why I say it's a working manual for discipleship because really it's come out of those conversations. Um, it's been, the, as I keep answering the same types of questions, I think, how do I say that more helpfully or how can I give somebody some type of direction and point them into passages that will help them. And really, this is a collection of that. And COVID gave me the opportunity, you know, because we had to sit in a study uh, when we weren't allowed to go out and meet out. So I sort of felt, oh, well, let's let's put that to good use. It's one of the many severe mercies that have come out of COVID, (laughs) that all sorts of good things have happened out of that terrible time. And and I'd like to say this book is one of them. It's a remarkable book because I've been in publishing for a long time. I've written books about Christian living and discipleship and so on. Um, but you've approached it in a unique way, not just in the topics you've chosen, which some of which you would expect to be in there, but others which are really helpful and not surprising, but great to see in there. Mm. But also because of the way you've framed it, it does come across as a book uh, about not just here's what the Bible says about being as a Christian, but what does it mean to live that way in a world that is not that way? Mm. So every chapter, like your little summary of the, of your nine key characteristics in the opening section all have the same kind of format. For example, the first one says, which is saved by grace, says the world says you earn your importance by what you do, but God says you're saved in Jesus by grace, not by what you do. Yeah. And every one of them has that kind of format, which kind of connects with what you were saying. The world is always shaping us, forming us, influencing us. And in a sense, Christian maturity is a transformation. It's 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 breaking the mold of the world in the kind of Romans twelve sort of sense, yeah. and yeah. and living a complete. There's a there's a contrast. There's an opposition. Absolutely, and, and you know we are called to be transformed in our minds, uh, and so. Uh, this is not a new battle. This is not a new Christian battle. This is what Christians have had to deal with since Jesus sent them out into the world. Um, it's just that what we are battling with today may look slightly different um, at different times. And, and of course, that's the difference between the implication of any passage you might read in the Bible and the application for today or for the person that, that, that is dealing with that passage today. So the implication will be timeless. The application of it, though, will look different to different. And, th- and that's part of the reason for trying to put those expectations. There's a world expectation and there's a God expectation, that contrast is probably worth acknowledging. We should be living in the world. We should be living and enjoying what the world has to offer, but we should be living like a light in the world. And in many ways, that's one of the things I hope will come out in this particular book. The governing verse really is the Matthew 5 verse 16, you know, shine a light in the world in such a way that others will see and give glory to God. 
And I think that's an intentional structure to the way that we should live out our lives. We live in a dark place, but we are meant to be the light. This comes out in the format of the book, in how you approach each chapter, and we'll talk about that in just a moment because it's a really interesting format, a unique format for, a, a, I'll say, a book like this. It is a book, but mm-hmm. it's kind of not just a book you sit down and read. But I'm interested in the topics you chose and how you chose them because you say they came out of conversations. So in one yeah. sense, they emerged from your practice as a pastor. Yeah. But they don't feel like a random set of topics to me. That They feel to me or look like they have a shape to them and a kind of rationale to them. Yeah. How did that work out in your mind? And why did you choose the topics that you did? Sure. Well, in part because those questions were the questions that I felt like I kept answering for different reasons for those four different groups of people. There is a structure to the nine essential topics, and it's probably worth saying it's not up to me to say here are the nine essential Christian topics. There are people far better than me to be able to work out what they might be, but I felt like in terms of thinking about how do we live and love being a disciple of Jesus, these are nine that's worth making sure you have in place. The first one, saved by grace, and really that is the foundation behind what we sit. The gospel calls us, and we know we are saved by grace. And so at at an absolute starting point, particularly in a world that says you have to do everything, um, being understanding and being saved by grace is an excellent foundation before anything else. Um, But then what does that relationship of being saved in grace look like? And the next two topics are grounded in the word and faithful in prayer. And in that sense, what I'm thinking is it's setting up the the framework on the foundation that allows us to enjoy the relationship with God. We hear how he speaks to us. We get to, to communicate with him. I see that in both of those two essential topics. Then you have a whole series of, of topics that really the order probably isn't as important. Bold in witness, resilient in suffering, committed in membership, loving in relationships, godly in giving. All of them are, are applications of how we live at that out in different spheres of how we live as a disciple of Jesus. Yet I think they're all things that we should be thinking through. I think in order to live that out, the testimony of Scripture calls us to make sure that we focus on those things, and often the conversations we have, will that'll be a, a pressure point in some way. Um, and then all of that is academic unless it's actually put into place. And so we finish the book off with being fruitful in service because that's where the rubber does hit the road and go, okay, well, being saved in grace calls us to action and so that people will see our good works and then give glory to God. And so uh, it really brings us back around. So that was the order or the, the insanity to the structure of the book, if you wish. I think there's a theological kind of order there too, though, Ken. Like it's, this is what happens in ministry, isn't it? In one sense, it's arising out of... Uh, your interactions with people, but there's your interactions with people are over the Bible and it's all shaped by the Bible and by biblical thinking and by a way of thinking about the Christian life. It's just in a sense describing the beginning of the Christian life, how God initiates it through his grace and feeds it by his word and sustains yeah. it by his spirit as we pray. And then this bears fruit and is worked out in all sorts of ways. It's worked yeah. out as we suffer, as we get on with each other as we deal with money, as we live in the world. And another way of saying that is, if you don't mind, is to say we move from principle to practice rather than the other way around. And I think we can often get that messed up uh, because the practice is what we're living out and and that's where the pressure points become. But if we don't recognize what the principle is, uh, and the principle we see is revealed there in Scripture for us, to then be able to work out how to take that principle and put it into practice is one of the the key concerns I I really want to move people through. And so although that's the structure of the book from Saved by Grace through to being fruitful in service, it's also the structure of each chapter. 
I want us to be able to do business with God in his word. I want us to think through the principle of each of those particular topics. But I want you I want to leave you by the end of the chapter thinking through how do you practically apply that now into your Christian life in some way. That's a good transition perhaps for us to talk about the the format of each chapter because it is it is really interesting. I haven't quite seen anyone do this in quite the way you've done it. Can you explain what the format of each chapter is and how that kind of came about? Yeah, so each chapter really has three parts. It starts with a first-person uh, reflection from the book of Acts, it, uh, and I'll come back and explain why. The second part is a, is a Bible study where I really point out a couple of passages and get you to work through what the Bible is saying on the particular topic. And then the third is the topic, uh, the way I would address it, which finishes off with moving from principle to practice, saying how do we then put that into practice. Um, Let me go back. Often when I read the amazing books that we get to read, particularly on discipleship, I will read the writer or the commentator's view on the particular topic. So what I wanted to do with this one was, was to put the Bible study before the chapter. The reason for that is because I'd much rather people did business with what God is saying to them before they worry about some schmuck like me writing what I think of what God says. And so really that that structure governed the way I sort of applied it. I, I do the Bible study with someone in the one-to-one setup, in the small group, or or just by yourself, so that you might learn what God is saying. And then to help clarify that, uh, then the chapter that follows is me then saying, have a think about this. In other words, let's draw the threads together of what you've been reading in the Bible. Let's bring in other parts of the Bible that we don't have time to read right now. And let's flesh out and have a fuller picture of this topic. But it builds on what you yourself have been reading. And as you've been reading, you then come to what you say in the chapter with those Bible ideas in your head, with an ability to interact with what you're saying and so on. That's right. In that sense, it's a systematic treatment. And I, I want us to be able to look systematically at what the Bible is saying so that we can do good, um, a, a good theology that's there. But of course, that means that you're starting straight away with a Bible study with no context at, at all. Um, and so that's where the Acts reflections came in. Acts is such an extraordinary book in the canon of Scripture because what it does is it creates that bridge from the promises and the covenant of the Old Testament, the reality of the Gospels that we see fulfilled with Jesus, and then the commission to go out and actually do what you're supposed to do, which then flows out of the rest of the letters of the New Testament. And Acts is that history that sits that actually joins the dots between what Jesus has commissioned and what the disciples then went and actually did. And so I see story after story in Acts of the first Christians putting in place what it is Jesus has commissioned them to do. And I don't think it's a surprise then that if these are essential, are good essential characteristics of a follower of Jesus, then you should also probably see them in the first Christians that we see documented in in the Acts of the Apostles. And so that's where that sort of came in as an introduction into a personal introduction or a uh, a relational introduction into a different person that you or group of people that you would meet in Acts. You're not the first person to grapple with what it means to be resilient in suffering. Look, this was Christians have always grappled with this. Let me tell you a story, a kind of first-person reimagined story of 
of what it might have been like for this particular Christian. And so you take the Acts narrative and you kind of retell it imaginatively. That's right, and it shows you which passage it's coming from in Acts. So if you were to open up Acts and read it, I'd hope that you would be able to see in the first-person retelling, not creative writing, but writing that actually goes, oh, look at that, That's and I can see that in the text. And in that sense, um, not bring it to life, but give it a character that I can now relate to because I'm a Christian like they were in Acts, trying to work out how to live this out. Yeah, it's very clever and it's effective in leading you then into, well, why don't I read the Bible now and see what that might mean for my life? And then the rest of the chapter kind of kind of teases that out. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'd like to go on to, say, talk about one of these topics and sort of focus on one as an example uh, of, of how you've done this. But before I get there, do you think there are particular pressures that, Christians are struggling with today? Like, are there particular areas that really stood out to you as you were thinking of the nine characteristics and so on? Sure. And that is quite a broad question. And there are, again, wiser people than me that can probably give good commentary on that. Um, I do think that we there is that tension of what it means for us to live in a world but not be of the world. And that tension is created because this isn't rocket science, because we live in a sinful and a fallen world. And so the challenges that I think Christians are experiencing, particularly in how they grow as a Christian, will often come back to the fallenness that we might bring to the table, but also the fallenness that we experience in the world around us. I think we're very good as a world at identifying sin. It can be pointed out very quickly, and often it's pointed out of Christians every time you know uh, we might do something wrong. Yet we're also very good at looking away from sin and looking for the causes of it and not looking actually at the sin itself. Uh, You see this in a news report. Uh, Every time a news report of some tragic event that's there, it doesn't take long for them to move beyond what would be the perpetrator to the institutional failings or the government failings or the policy failings or the legal failings of, of, of whatever's gone wrong that allows that sin to happen. Well, I'm not sure it's allowing sin to happen at all. I think sin just happens. Uh, And so I think that's a challenge we might be able to live with. And so as Christians, I wonder whether we overestimate our own maturity and we underestimate the maturity of others. Or another way of putting that is that we underestimate our own sin and we overestimate the sin of others. And we live caught in that sort of challenge between the two, looking for answers. Then, of course, we find ourselves doubting the word of God or thinking that we're treading water or wondering whether Jesus is actually really good for us or wondering why we have Jesus at all. Sounds rather like the very, very old problem of saying it it was the woman who you put here. She gave me the fruit to eat, and so I ate. Yeah. Um, the, the instinct to point away from ourselves, um, and it was the woman, and she was deceived. That's quite true. Yeah. But that's not the problem. The problem is that, like an idiot, you stood there and you took it and ate it. Yeah, yeah. And it's exactly Take the same. responsibility for the sin that you have that's there. And knowing that, Jesus ultimately will take the responsibility for you. And so we can both be real about our sin and yet real about our salvation because we've got a real relationship uh, with Jesus. It's very yeah. true. It's so much at the center of what sin is. The, the pride that elevates myself and puts myself in the place of God therefore doesn't want to look in the mirror at myself and actually confront 
who I am and what I have done. Yeah. Uh, I much prefer to say that there are problems. Of course, there are problems, but they're mainly with you out there. And if you out there would just sort yourselves out, then yeah. everything would be fine. Yeah. Whereas all those other people out there are just different versions of you. They're just sinners like you. Yeah. But we're just reluctant to confront that as people. And you're exactly right about the um, about the news reports. It's striking, isn't it? Every single tragedy that happens, you're kind of waiting as the report unfolds. What's the larger institutional, social organizational, cultural problem that this is going to be a symptom of and that causes us then to talk about that problem rather than the actual causes of that particular problem, which might have been the terribly sinful impulses and actions of a particular person. Yeah. And think about the pressure that puts on Christians. Uh, So again, I'm a pastor. And so one of the things I want to be absolutely concerned about for those that I'm trying to pastor is their spiritual health. We've just worked a couple of years through a, a pandemic where health has really been a key topic on people's minds. We've heard all about physical health. We've heard all sorts of things about mental health. Uh, we've seen the carnage that's created on many relationships, so relational health. Uh, and yet now we're also moving into a, a inflationary issue where there is a whole bunch of financial health questions. Uh, and depending on how personal you want to get, there's a whole bunch of people talking about sexual health. And I wonder whether it's actually in that order. We are so concerned physically or mentally, relationally, financially, potentially sexually. And the last thing we then consider is spiritually. And I wonder whether if you think about the physical, mental, relational, financial, sexual, all of them are issues for now. Whereas our spiritual health, not only is that an issue for now, it's also the only one on that list that is a matter for all ways. And so whilst I recognize we need to live in the now, it's worth recognizing, I think, that being a disciple means that you've got a foot both in the now and in the always. And so, of course, there's going to be a tension and a pressure. How do you be a disciple when you actually have both of those things going before you? And your spiritual health and the transformation, the state of your heart and mind, obviously, penetrates and permeates and kind of lies behind all those other areas and is kind of the key determinative factor as a Christian and as a non-Christian for how we actually live and think. Yeah, and you see that in the decisions and the priorities that we make about whether I go to church today, whether I read my Bible today, whether I, uh, you know, whether I try and speak to someone about Jesus, because all of those other factors actually, if they're a higher priority, will speak louder. And all of a sudden, I've got an excuse not to make it to church today, not to read the Bible, so not to talk to someone about Jesus, because those other matters have actually taken or distracted us from what we should be doing. Now, I asked you before we started our conversation if we were going to sort of focus on one or take one of your nine characteristics and just use it as an example of the approach of the book and to give people a taste of of how it works and and to talk about this issue because it'd be helpful. You said to me you would choose loving in relationships. Um, I'll read you the summary of loving in relationships. It says, the world says all you need is love and we can define love to be whatever we choose. But God says, love others in a way that is both pleasing and acceptable to me. Why did you particularly say to me you think that's a key one? I think the tension there, understanding how it is to be a Christian, a light in a world that is dark, is probably drawn out most now in the way we talk about how we love one another. The expectations of Christians is that we're supposed to be loving. Uh, And I think that's, I don't know many Christians that aren't trying to be loving uh, and yet I'm told over and over again how unloving Christians are. In fact, we're hateful. Well, yeah, that's right. And so uh, 
I think that particular chapter is is my way of trying to say what does God say about how you actually genuinely love, um, and why does that look different to the way the world is saying you should be loving? Yeah, that's a very important subject. Well, to give people a taste of this, I'm going to ask you, and I hope you don't mind me asking you this, I'm going to ask you to read the story, the first-person Acts reflection that begins this chapter, um, just to give people a taste of how this starts, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the chapter. That's a bit different. Okay. Here's a voice from Acts uh, for the chapter, Loving in Relationships. I need to obey even if it meant loving my enemy. It's inspired by Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 19. Uh, And in my mind, I was sort of hoping that people would, given that I've said it's Acts 9, would have Acts 9 open before them, perhaps have read it, uh, so that as you go through this reflection, you can see what the text is saying. And it's not my creative retelling. Let's see. Have you ever been asked to do something that just feels wrong? I remember hearing God's call, and I remember thinking that nothing seemed right about what I was being asked to do. As a follower of Jesus, I'd been so encouraged to see the gospel work in Damascus going from strength to strength. More and more people in my home city were hearing about Jesus and becoming his disciples. It was exciting. But then we heard a rumor. Saul of Tarsus was on his way to Damascus. This was unsettling to say the least. Saul had led the charge against many followers of the way. He had issued murderous threats against the Lord's disciples and had arranged permission from the high priest to travel around the synagogue seeking out Christians to imprison for their faith. Oh, he was a piece of work. There were even stories about him looking on approvingly as Stephen was stoned outside Jerusalem. We all knew the threat he posed. And then the Lord called out to me in a vision, Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He'll be praying and he'll be expecting you because in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias restore his sight. What? Surely this was a cruel joke. If this was the same man we feared, this was a suicide mission. And I had to say something. Lord, I said, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's, he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. And I will never forget what the Lord said next. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Now I had a choice. I could listen to my fear, reject the words that I'd heard from my Lord as a falsehood and selfishly walk the other way, or I could love like my Lord, which would require me to regard his words as truth and obey them, even if it meant loving my enemy. I went to Straight Street, pushed open the door, cautiously entered the house, saw a man at prayer, looked at this man who couldn't see me because he didn't know I was there. I could still have run. I wanted to. I hated the things that he'd done. But I placed my hands on him and I said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me. 
so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately a substance like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. It was all as the Lord had said it would be. I'm so glad I didn't run. Saul was baptized and ever since that moment, he has served the Lord with more zeal than anyone I've known. Now he's known as Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. What an unfathomable change. It wasn't comfortable for me to do as God told me. This man was an enemy of everything I believed in. I did not want to love him. It all felt completely wrong. Yet now Paul is my brother in Christ. I'm so glad I trusted God and obeyed his call. The story of Ananias is a is an extraordinary story. When we read that part of Acts, we tend to focus on Saul and Paul mm, and on the mm. extraordinary turnaround. Mm. But you, you beautifully bring out there, what would it have been like for Ananias? Mm. And what an example it is of loving your enemies, which is the distinctively Christian kind of love. Yeah, absolutely. A few episodes back, you had Tom Habib, and he was talking about how the Gospel of John uses often the minor characters or, or the characters around the story to help us see how to relate to Jesus. Same thing in Acts. There are so many characters as the book of Acts unfolds that help us see Jesus for who he really is because they respond to Jesus the way we're supposed to respond. So as you read this story, as we read it at the beginning of the chapter, we then look at the Bible, and the chapter, a particular part of Scripture we look at is Matthew 22, 34 to 30, uh, and Jesus uh, relating to the Pharisees and religious leaders who are trying to catch him and so on, and what the law is and love and so on. And then Romans 13 we look at as well. As this chapter unfolds, what are you really wanting to say? What's the key thing you're wanting to say about the nature of the kind of love that marks the Christian disciple? Yeah, so you're talking about the Bible study. Um, what I'll do as I move into the topic is I'm going to actually concentrate on 1 John and what John, 1 John tells us about how we love. To answer your question, though, the key thing about that chapter is uh, I, I think in order to understand Christian love, we need to see it as a sacrificial love for others that is both pleasing and acceptable to God before it is to the world. And often we can get that the wrong way around. I need to be loving in the eyes of the world, and God will be happy with that. No, not necessarily. Um, in actual fact, we're given quite clear instruction that in order to love well, and I'd say in order to be Christianly loving, it is to do it in a way that is pleasing and acceptable to God first. Because what it means to really love someone is to pursue their good. It's to do what's best for them. You can't love without a vision of what is good because love really is a seeking after that good and wanting it for somebody else and seeing that good in someone else. And it's why, theologically speaking, without a vision of who God is, without an understanding of what he regards and teaches us is good, of which he, of course, is the highest and greatest, yeah. without understanding the good in God yeah. and wanting that for someone, I really can't love them. Well, that's right. And, you know, that perfect love, which is described so well in 1 John, is seen in the Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit. If you take God out of the picture, then love will start to look very different. We live in a world where God has been removed from the picture. And so it's not really a surprise that the love that we are now seeking out also now looks very different. 
take that another step further. If perfect love is what we see in the Godhead, if you take the Godhead out of it, then no longer do you have a perfect love. You have some other type of love. And so if we're not completely happy about that, there is a reason. Uh, And I think that's flowed out. And what the chapter tries to do is show that there is a relationship between love, truth, and obedience. They work together And if you get any one of those wrong, then you end up with a different type of love. So without love, truth will not be valued. Without truth, it's difficult to know how to obey. Without obedience, it's impossible to demonstrate true love. It works together. And what I think and what I argue in the chapter is that each of those key qualities have now been replaced by the world for something else. And the result of that is we end up with well, are very fallen and not trustworthy and helpful love, which everyone seems to be upset about. Yeah, it's very helpful, Ken, and the, the way you unfold that in the chapter is, is really well done. It's a very, very useful book because it comes out of practice, it comes out of your conversations, but it is so theologically shaped and it's imaginatively done in a way that communicates well and engages well. I can see Christian people reading this book but I get the sense that you don't just want people to sit and read it on their own. Like, How would you like this book actually to be used? Or where do you see it being used and being useful as a ministry kind of resource? Oh, thanks for the question. Well, I'd really like it to be read. You know, books on shelves look good, but they don't actually help. So um, it is good to be read and then given away, to be honest. Um, give it to somebody else who can then read it and hopefully benefit from it. I hope individually people will be upheld. And uh, it is the type of book I think you can just sit down and read and go, right, well, that was nice. You could, but it, you may not get the most out of it. But you could read each chapter over a week. Start with the Acts Reflection on one day, do the Bible study over the next two days, read the topic chapter on the next two days, and then think about the application on the next day, and then go to church and talk about it with someone, perhaps. Uh, Another way to use the book, and this is probably the reason, the way I use it, is to read it one-to-one with people. Well, that's how it all started, with you sitting, reading the Bible with people. That's right. You know, read the Acts Reflection as a way of getting yourself into it, sit down, do the Bible study together, send them away to read the topic so that they can do that. You've got something to then talk about when you next see one another or challenge one another, either WhatsApp or Messenger or whatever it is about how you put it into play. So there's the one-to-one or one-to-small group, uh, a one-to-one or one-to-two type of reading. But you could also use it as a, as a growth group or a Bible study group manual in that there are Bible studies that could be written and done as a Bible study group, again, leaving the group to go away and then read the chapter um, and talk about it on the Sunday. So I really hope it will get into people's hands and be used as that sort of discipleship manual and create a lot of discussion. Well, dear Two Ways News listener, let me commend and recommend that you do exactly that. It's a really terrific little resource. It's really unlike any sort of basic Christian discipleship. What's the Christian life really about? What are the key things Christians need to kind of work on and understand in their Christian lives? It's unlike uh, any resource of that kind that I've seen, and it's very effective. It's called Christian Essentials, Nine Key Characteristics of Every Follower of Jesus. It's by Ken Noakes. Ken, thanks for coming and talking about this, and more to the point, thanks for putting all the work in to, to write this book. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for your very kind words about it. It means a great deal hearing that from you and from Two Ways to Live Ministries. Mm.
Thanks, Ken. And thanks, everyone, for being here again this week on Two Ways News. As always, please do get in touch. If you've already read or or seen Ken's book and you have any comments or mini-reviews of it, please send those in, and I'm sure he'd love to hear any feedback. And I should also say, of course, that you can get hold of Ken's book at any good Christian bookstore or online. It's published by Matthias Media, and, of course, you can also order it direct from them at matthiasmedia.com.au. Just jump on to their website, either here in Australia or in the US website, which is just matthiasmedia.com, and check out Ken's book there. It's called Christian Essentials, and his name, Ken Noakes, is spelled N-O-A-K-E-S. And if there's any other questions you have about what we've been talking about today, which has really been about the nature of the Christian life uh, and how God's word and God's grace drives it, but does get worked out in practice in all these different facets of our life as we live as sinful people still in a world that's opposed to Jesus. If that sparked off thoughts and questions in you, then please do get in touch and tell us about those as well. Can we almost always finish our Two Ways News episodes with a prayer? And so I'm going to ask you if you'd close in prayer for us. Love to. Thanks. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that we have such a wonderful word before us that we can dive into and that you would instruct us through. And we pray that you would indeed work in our hearts so that you would help us to shine like a light before others uh, so that many would see our good deeds and glorify you. Um, Help us to be people who love being disciples of Jesus and to do that so that your light would be seen in a dark world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.